Well, Jared Wilson is a, he works at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, and he's a frequent author and blogger, and he wrote the following on his blog this week, and it was a post entitled, I am the center of the universe. And this is what he said. This week, I'm having to drop my daughter off for a summer class in the morning. This has put me in the office two hours later than I usually arrive, and this morning, as I was waiting for my coffee at Starbucks, I could not believe how slow everyone was moving, as if they had no cares at all about my schedule. I find these same people in every line I fall into, grocery store checkouts, ATMs, service desks. I've also noticed that when I'm trying to relax, rest, 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 Everybody else around me is frantic and bothering me. They ask me to do things. They make requests, interrupt my introversion, leave little piles of duty around my feet. I can only come to one or two conclusions about my frustration over this inevitable fact of life. Either I am the center of the universe, and you all don't know, or I am not the center of the universe, and I am upset that you all know. I wake up this way, I bet you do too. We wake up in self-sovereignty mode. Then we get frustrated because we keep running into people who think they're the center of the universe. It's frustrating. What a splendid mercy, even if a severe one then, when Jesus gives us a hard shove out of our own makeshift thrones and all the little planets we've set in orbit around us fall down. Thump, 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 thump. Job 38.4, where were you? when I establish the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. Well, Daniel chapter 4 this morning records the last of a series of dealings with God and Nebuchadnezzar. And this chapter is unique in that Nebuchadnezzar is the key player. He's the center of attention. And in this chapter, it's time for Nebuchadnezzar to learn the lesson that Daniel and his three friends already knew. In chapters 1 through 3, as we've been making our way through the book of Daniel, the first six chapters, chapter by chapter. In chapters one through three, you've seen that Daniel and his three friends have met a challenge. They responded in obedience to God, and as a result, they were blessed by God. And now it's time for Nebuchadnezzar to learn the same lesson. And in this passage, we come to a climax of a theme that's been repeated in every chapter of Daniel so far. Over and over, the kingdom of God and its sovereignty over the other kingdoms of the world has been repeated and emphasized in these first four chapters. And here in Daniel 4, we come to the climax of that theme where God's sovereignty over both nations and individuals is celebrated in each of the stories. And so in Daniel 1, if you remember from several weeks ago, God's sovereignty over the nations and individuals was shown in the way in which God gave wisdom to Daniel and the three witnesses who survived the testing of their captivity in the court. And God has shown to be sovereign as he preserves his people in spiritual purity, even as they resist the king's orders. And then in chapter 2, God's sovereignty again shows up, as it is Daniel alone who is able to interpret the dream, which was given to Nebuchadnezzar, and which none of his counselors were able to interpret. And then in chapter 3 last week, we saw that the preservation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even in the fiery furnace before all the nations who were assembled on the plain of Dura, showed God's sovereignty even over mighty Nebuchadnezzar and the land of Babylon. And so now in Daniel chapter 4, as we come to this chapter this morning, we're going to hear from the king's own mouth of God's sovereignty 
as it culminates in this theme which has been running through these first four chapters. So as we look at that theme, I want to emphasize for us this morning, whatever we make of Nebuchadnezzar's confession, what we have in this passion passage is an outline of how someone comes into the kingdom of God, how someone experiences conversion. Nebuchadnezzar is going to practice Psalm 66, 16 this morning. Psalm 66, 16 says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. So notice the preamble. That's the first three verses of this. This chapter is written by Nebuchadnezzar as a, as a record of his testimony of what God has done in and through him. So first of all, I want you to notice about the preamble in verse 1 that this is a public testimony. This is not just Nebuchadnezzar addressing his court or the people that are all around him. He intends this testimony to be public. Notice what he says. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. This is a global edict that he is making. Number two, it's personal. It's not just public, it's personal. Notice verse two, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God, the true God of Israel, has done for me. So it's very personal. This God, who is the sovereign king of the universe, has exercised his sovereignty in a deeply personal and life-transforming way in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And then three, not only is it public and personal, but it's preeminent. That is, the message is of supreme importance, and it shows up throughout the entire chapter. Notice verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And this theme of God's kingdom being greater than all other kingdoms shows up again and again in this chapter. Look with me at some of those verses. Verse 17, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 25 and 26, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, skipping down to the bottom of verse 25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 26, your kingdom, about midway through verse 26, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. And then verses 32 and 34. Verse 32, the end. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Again, verse 34, his reason returned to him, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Finally, verse 37, I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right. I mean, this is a clear theme that runs right throughout this chapter in verse after verse after verse, that it is heaven that rules, that it is the Most High who rules over the, all the kingdoms of the earth. This is an important lesson for us, and it's one of the most important ones that we'll learn in these first six chapters. In fact, all the book of Daniel, really, is that God rules the universe, and he has installed his son Jesus on the throne, and Jesus is ruling the universe in a seated position, brothers and sisters. Jesus isn't pacing the floor like a nervous basketball coach wondering what to play or what call to play. 
based on what the other team is doing. That's not his posture. He is seated. Psalm 2 verse 4 says, He who sits in heaven laughs. He isn't nervously working out plan B. God is ruling above and laughing deeply. He's public. This this testimony is public. It's personal. It's preeminent. And these first three verses of Daniel 4 raise this question for us this morning. How is it or how has God made his kingdom known to the king? The rest of the chapter reveals the dramatic ways and links that God will go to make his kingdom rule known in ways that bring forth words of praise from among those who did not know him previously. And his story is our story. There are three steps in this process, and I want to unpack those this morning. First of all, there's a personal crisis. Anytime God is going to make his kingdom known to a person, it's going to involve a personal crisis. Let's see Nebuchadnezzar's crisis beginning at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he whose name named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told, told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field felt shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let his beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Personal crisis. Again, this is not the first crisis Nebuchadnezzar has had. He's been repeatedly met with crises of various sorts. And this is the second dream that it's least recorded in here, in here for, the, for us in the book of Daniel. And this dream reveals something similar to the first dream, although it's more deeply personal this time. It's a picture, it's a vision of a great tree that is cut down by another 
And the result is that the one over that is personified by the tree is driven out from power and driven into a place of destitution and desperation. And Nebuchadnezzar is struck by this, realizing this is very possible, similar to the last dream, having to do with me and the termination, at least the great reduction of my power and influence and my kingdom. The crisis, though, at heart that Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing is he's having, like we read in our beginning illustration with Jared Wilson, he's having his self-sovereignty shaken. He's, he's coming to the realization that he's not in as much control as he thinks he is, that God is in control, that it's not our intellect and our abilities and our accomplishments that ultimately determine our futures or provide our security. The king thought, I have power, I have wealth, I have accomplishments, and those things will be a hedge of security for me. And I will rely on them, and I'll rely on a team of specialists around me to cover all the contingencies that I might not be able to cover with myself. But as we see here, that's not good enough. And that his kingdom is a paper kingdom. It's a kingdom that can easily be overthrown. Ian Duguid, in his commentary on Daniel, writes the following about how important it is for us to experience a personal crisis when it comes to God's sovereignty ourselves. He says, Discontent and disaster, or at the least profound personal discomfort, are very often the necessary precursors for spiritual growth and change. As long as we're comfortable and at ease in the world, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. On the other hand, when God disturbs the calm waters of our lives, we begin ready to seek different paths. It is often when our career hopes are dashed or our marriage relationship is in shreds or the doctor announces that we only have a few more months to live that we're finally persuaded to become serious about spiritual things. If that is true, however, it suggests that we should approach these troubled times of our lives with a far more positive outlook than we normally do. These shattering experiences should prompt within us the expectation and hope that God's going to do something important in our lives. It's precisely through the storms of life that God will show us who we really are, and even more importantly, who He really is. So, personal crisis is important. Sooner or later, life is going to knock us off our thrones. And sooner or later, we're going to be hit with a personal crisis that's not going to be answerable or solvable by any specialists we normally look to for assistance. It's not going to be solved by the ones in whom we trust for answers, doctors or media or this particular influential, knowledgeable person or myself. And in that hour, we will need a person of understanding someone who has access to the heavens. And where will we turn in those moments when life's crises have led us to the breaking point? We are going to need to go exactly where Nebuchadnezzar went. We need to go to a man who has access to heaven. And who's that man for us? Daniel? No, Colossians 2.3 tells us who that man is. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we must turn to the ultimate wise man, the one who came from heaven, 
to live among us and live a perfect life and offer that life up sacrificially as a payment for sin on the cross for all those who would believe in him and be raised from the dead three days later and vindicated as the only son of God and installed at the right hand of God and, God and, God, of the God, of God, of God and his father as the king forever who will rule over all things until he comes again to establish his kingdom in fullness. That's the one we have to go to. And that's the one that Nebuchadnezzar goes to as expressed in the person of Daniel. So that's the first step. Got to have a personal crisis. Have you had that personal crisis? Have you had a moment that has rocked you to the core? Have you had a moment where your self-sovereignty has been shaken, where you have been knocked off the throne? If you're a Christian, you have. If you're a Christian, you definitely have. It could have come as a quiet whisper in the night. It could have come as a violent, terrifying dream. It could have come after a series of circumstances which where you realized, I am not in control. But came to you, it did. And you were made aware that there is a God in heaven, and I am not that God. And I need that God. I can remember it very vividly for myself as a 15-year-old boy. Not growing up in church, not having a church background, and my testimony is not the same. God writes different stories for different people. But very vividly, I can remember that the thing that made me desire to get right with God was not only an awareness of my profound sinfulness, but also awareness that I was not in control. I grew up in a very a home that, was, that, that had a lot of issues in it, and there was a lot of insecurity that, that that bred in my life as a result. And one of the things I, I knew was that you can't look to men to save you. That there's got to be somebody out there that, know, that has created the world, that has, that has made things the way they're supposed to be, and he's the only one on whom I can rely, because men are fickle. I saw it in those who were supposed to love me the most. And I love them now. And my parents are wonderful parents. But in those days, as a young boy, it was, very, it was a, lot of, a lot of struggle. But I can remember very vividly at age 15 thinking as I was lying on my bed, God, if you made this world, and i got to know who you are. And so that led me through a series of events by which my grandmother started taking me to church, and we began to hear the word of God preached to us, and it didn't take long before God began to move in my life and bring me to himself. So it's a personal crisis of some sort that, that, that God uses to rip us out of the center of the universe, to knock us off our throne, and to make us realize that he alone is God. That's the first step. Number two, we need a faithful witness. We not only need a personal crisis, we need a faithful witness. And we see that faithful witness here in Daniel. So let's read about this faithful witness beginning at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was, a, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and it gives, gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins." by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a, strengthen, a lengthening of your prosperity. Don't you just love Daniel? I mean, he's such a faithful witness. What is it that makes him a faithful witness? I think it's two things. Two things here that embody his faithful witness. The first one is he's got a tender heart. Did you notice that? In verse 19, how he wants the best for King Nebuchadnezzar. He was dismayed for a while by the interpretation and his thoughts alarmed him. And notice, if you look down at verse, the next verse, in verse or later in verse 19, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, he knows he's going to have to speak a courageous word to Nebuchadnezzar, but he doesn't want it to be true for him because he wants to see him flourish and he wants to see him prosperous. But what I love about this is his tender heart toward the king is that even as he speaks the truth, he expresses the desire that he's on the king's team. We've seen this throughout Daniel, this tenderness of heart, this willingness to be diplomatic, and peacemaking, and loving, and not insisting on their own way and having every single box that they want checked, checked. In Daniel chapter 1, we saw it. They just said, hey, can we just do a little experiment for 10 days? Very diplomatic. Chapter 2, okay, king, you're asking for the dream. It's a little bit rash, it's a little bit quick. Can we just talk this out and have a little bit of time to make, to make this interpretation? Again, very diplomatic, very winsome. Same thing in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they are approached, they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. They're not staking their claim, walking around. You don't have any right to do this. They're saying, we'll submit to this, and God's going to deliver us. And if he won't, we still won't serve you. That's the kind of people that God creates. Tenderness of heart. Now, lest you think this is an easy thing or a non-supernatural act, Imagine the bitterness that Daniel could have felt toward the king after all he had done. Think about this. Has any of you ever been treated like this? Captured and deported as God's chosen people in chapter 1. Enforcing the king, enforcing his desires on his subjects by if they refuse to oblige, he's going to chop their heads off. Daniel 1 verse 10. 
issuing a death decree for scores of people simply because they couldn't interpret the dream he refused to describe. Creating golden statues for worship and ordering the live cremation of friends and people that Daniel loved simply because they refused to worship him. This is the same guy that wanted his friends dead. But Daniel never delighted in the idea of the ungodly king getting what had coming to him from the hand of God. Because that's what mercy does to people's hearts. You never want people to get what's coming to them. You want to see the king brought into the kingdom, not excluded from the kingdom, no matter what they've done. Is there anybody that you don't want to see receive God's mercy because they hurt you? Then you're installing yourself as the king of the universe and the arbiter of all goodness. It's pride. It's pride. Jesus Luke 19, verses 41 and 42, when he drew near to the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, would have known the day that the things that make for peace. Romans 10, 1, Paul, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for their salvation. I would be cut off if they would be saved. Moses, Exodus 32, same thing. It's this tenderness of heart that God produces in his people that desire the best for people. And the best for people is coming into the kingdom of God. And so that leads us to our second point. You've got to be willing to have a fearless spirit, too. Can't just have a tender heart. Got to have a fearless spirit. Got to tell the truth. Got to speak the truth. Got to be willing to speak the truth and not allow the fear to make us silent. If you truly love people, you'll tell them the truth. You'll tell them that things between, that they do have a relationship with God and it's not on good terms. And the only way that they can have a relationship with God on good terms is by faith and repentance toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to tell them the truth. Much like the news that Daniel had to give to Nebuchadnezzar, the gospel we preach contains both good news and bad news. It says, guess what? You're not the king. Guess what? There is a king. Guess what? I'm saying guess what a lot because my daughter says guess what a lot. Says, guess what? Guess what? Guess what? <laughs> Love you, Piper. And, uh, but guess what? You're not the king. Guess what? You're not the sovereign. You're not the ruler. You're, and guess what? This king has some issues with you that have to be resolved if he's going to receive you. Namely, you need to live an absolutely perfect life, and you need to find a way to atone for all your crimes and all your sins. But there's good news because the king has provided what you need. He's provided the righteous record. He's provided the sin payment. And if you will turn from your sin and you will entrust yourself to Jesus, that record counts for you. And that payment is yours. So David Helm puts it this way, we must be willing to share the bad news with people that they are out of sorts with God even as our heart breaks for them while we're saying it. Notice that? Fearless spirit, tender heart. We must be willing to tell others that God is not pleased with this pride, the human tendency to push him aside and think that we're the measure of all things. We must be willing to say why God works against us so that we might one day know that he rules and not us. Finally, we must be ready to call for repentance and offer hope. Two encouragements here before we move to the third point. Notice this. 
The story of Nebuchadnezzar should bring us to see how long-suffering God is. We can be thankful that God does not give up on those who initially or even repeatedly resist him. Can't we? God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar indirectly in chapter 1, and he didn't listen. He just promoted God's servants. So he gave some tacit approval to what God was doing. Then chapter 2, God speaks to him directly through a dream, and he gives some praise from his mouth. God shakes him in chapter 3 as a result of Daniel's three friends being delivered from the fiery furnace. God has knocked again and again and again and again on the door of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And in this chapter, God knocks once more, but this time he's going to knock in such a way that he knocks the door completely off the hinges. And we can be so grateful that God is so patient and long-suffering and comes after us again and again and again. Doesn't that encourage you? For the times that God has knocked, he will keep knocking. But notice number two also that we must be patient and prayerful, especially for those whom we love who are yet outside the kingdom of God. As this chapter begins, think about this. As chapter four begins, it had been 30 Four years since Daniel began speaking into Nebuchadnezzar's life. That's almost, that's, I'm a little bit older than that. But 34 years. And then another year passed between Daniel's interpretation of the dream and its fulfillment. And seven more years passed before Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven. A total of 40 years have passed before Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and responded to Daniel's witness. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. No matter how hard the heart, God can reach it. Brother, sister, father, mother, spouse, neighbor, son, daughter, friend, co-worker, God can get them, even after 40 years. I read a story of God's tenacious perseverance this week from Brian Chapel. Brian Chapel is a president of Covenant Seminary, I believe, still, in St. Louis. And he was a pastor for a long time. And he recounts this story, which I think will serve as an encouragement for us to keep going when we are tempted to lose heart with people. He said, and he's referring, this is a friend of his, so he's telling the story of a, of a pastor friend that he knew. But he said, as a young pastor fresh out of seminary, my friend was, visited, was asked to visit a dying man in a Washington, D.C. hospital and aggressive bone cancer was eating away the man's life, and he was not a Christian. On the few occasions when the pastor presented the gospel, there was no spiritual response, but a friendship formed. Through a number of visits, the pastor learned that this dying patient was a remarkable self-made man. He was raised in Spain by a loving mother who diligently taught her son the truths of the faith. He only listened a little. The Franco regime killed his father, and because Spain's official church supported Franco, the boy spurned Christianity. He fled his country as a young teenager and came to America knowing no English. He worked hard and studied hard. He eventually went to college, to medical school, and then began a highly successful career. Despite his early disadvantages, he became skilled, wealthy, and a respected leader in our nation's most prestigious hospital. He also became more convinced of his atheism. Then came the cancer. In just a few months, the cancer destroyed the accomplishments of a lifetime. His body, once kept in top shape by miles of daily swimming, was devastated. 
His skills also began to deteriorate with the advances of the cancer. With his spirit broken and his body racked with pain, the man ran out of pride and finally tired of his own answers. Personal crisis. When the young pastor next visited, the despairing doctor confronted him. He said, I've treated depression all my life, but I have no answers for what I'm going through. If your God really has some answers, then you must help me with the hell I am going through. Give me some peace if you can. The young pastor could hardly think what to say. He hesitated, grasped for the right words, and then stumbled forward. He said, you've gained everything a man could gain in every avenue of life. You have wealth, respect, and achievement. These all may have to be put aside before you gain this last thing you want. In every sphere of life, you've succeeded except the spiritual sphere. And to succeed there, you must not follow any of the rules you have used before. You cannot conquer the spiritual world by your efforts. To gain spiritual success, you must admit your helplessness and inability. You must confess you have nothing to stand on. To enter God's kingdom and know his peace, you must not come as a self-sufficient man, but as a helpless child. You must not come as a lion, but as a lamb. Praise God for that young pastor. Tender heart, fearless spirit. Chapel continues. Still, there was no spiritual response. Little else was said that night. The man talked no more. A few days later, the bone cancer progressed to the extent that the man's leg broke spontaneously as he lay in bed. The doctors had to operate to repair the damage despite their patient's weakened condition. On the eve of that operation, unbeknownst to his family, he wrote a note to the young pastor. In a labored scrawl, he wrote in Spanish the words that he had memorized years ago at his mother's knee. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The words of the Apostles' Creed. The note continued in English with these words. Jesus, I hate all my sins. I have not served or worshipped you. Father, I know the only way to come into your kingdom is by the precious blood of Jesus. I know you stand at the door and will answer those who knock, so I now want to be your lamb. The man who wrote those words never gained consciousness after his operation. His life was lost, but his soul was won. Trophy of God's grace. So there's a faithful witness. Now let's close with a new creation. A new creation. So you've got a personal crisis that meets a faithful witness, and the result is a new creation. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Awful. His crisis was fulfilled. He didn't listen. A year later, the, the, the word comes and it happens just as God said it would happen. And then verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. It's very important. 
This, this kind of phrase is used in the Bible to demonstrate conversion. That when you're, when you're set in your right mind, I mean, think, those of us who were in Gospel Project this morning, we saw that happen with the young prodigal. It even said it that way. He came to himself, and he went home to his father. This is Nebuchadnezzar coming to himself. This is different than in the past. This is, a, this is a, his reason returning to him. Now, granted, the, the dream told him that he would be set in his opposite mind. He would have the mind of a beast, and he behaved that way. But then he set in his right mind and noticed the words and the, 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 that are coming out of his mouth. He says, I bless the Most High, and I praise and honor, honor him who lives forever. Verse 36 at the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords assault me. I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me post-humility, post-being brought deep and low. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. It's hard to imagine a more humiliating experience than the one depicted here with the king. The words of Bob Dylan in Like a Rolling Stone seem to describe it pretty well, so I'll quote Prophet Dylan here. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine through the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? People call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud. After having to be scourging, scrounging your next meal, how does it feel? How does it feel? to be without a home, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone. See, what we have here is Nebuchadnezzar being brought down lower than he's ever been brought, humbled to the dust personally by God, and made aware that his kingship ultimately is not the, the, the main kingship in the world. And in fact, what we see here is God doing something more than he's ever done for Nebuchadnezzar at this point. He has not brought him personally all that was prophesied to him through this dream. Even in the first one, even in his first dream in chapter 2, it was going to come much later. But nevertheless, in chapter 4, what we see here is God personally taking it upon himself to deeply and profoundly humble this king. I think what we see here, while we can't be absolutely 100% for sure in every single situation, we definitely see here a, a pattern for conversion. We see the crisis being met with a faithful witness, being resp a response of pr a profound humiliation and worship. So what we really see here, I think, is real faith in seed form. We see real faith in seed form. And Daniel, because if you remember... Perhaps you, you've not heard this, but there, there, real faith has really three components to it. There's a knowledge component, there's an assent component, and there's a trust component. That is, by knowledge, I mean there's certain content you have to understand to have real biblical faith. I think that's what's going on in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's getting some content about who this God really is. Then Daniel chapter 3, he gets assent. He starts to say, yeah. If God's able to deliver them out of that furnace where there's not a whiff of smoke on their garments, he must be the true God. So previously, Nebuchadnezzar has both number one and two, but he yet, hadn't yet come to a place of trust in this God, of, of, of actually transferring his sovereignty 
to the God of heaven. And I think that's what we see him coming to in Daniel chapter 4, where he acknowledges that no longer is, and he says it in much more detail with much more content and heart behind it than he ever has because he's experienced personal humiliation and personal restoration. And so this is very important for us to understand because we have to understand that there are lots of people in the world who claim to be Christians because they have a knowledge and they have an assent. They, they, they know some stuff about the Bible and they would say basically, yeah, I think that's true. But they haven't come to the point where they've committed them, themselves to what they know to be true and it's changed their life and it begins directing their path. And so it's that that must happen for a person to truly be brought into the kingdom of God. It can't be merely a knowledge. It can't be merely assent to that knowledge or agreement with that knowledge. It has to be a replaced trust where you begin to rest on that knowledge and it begins to form as the basis of your trust and hope in life. And so what we see as a result of that is the restoration of the king in verses 34 and 34, 35. See, transformation of this sort is never easily accomplished. Our pride is simply too stubborn for that. C.S. Lewis, in The Voyage of the Don Treader, and with this illustration I'm going to close, C.S. Lewis, in The Voice of the Don Treader, presents us with a picture of one whose reason returns to him. It's the character Eustace, the little boy who was ruled by pride until it turned him quite literally into a deranged dragon. You think Lewis had... Nebuchadnezzar in mind when he was writing about this boy? Perhaps. Aslan, the lion who represents the Christ figure in the book, tells Eustace, you have to let me undress you. About which Eustace later says the following, I was afraid of his claws, can I, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. <laughs> Do you know that pleasure? Do you know that pain? It's called conversion. <laughs> There's a pleasurable pain in conversion. Has God brought you to the place in your life where you were flat on your back? If so, why not see Nebuchadnezzar in history and Eustace in fiction as your example? It's our story. We were dragons. And Aslan had to rip us to shreds to get that dra those dragon scales off. And it felt like he was going to kill us in the process but it wasn't. We were raised to newness of life. And maybe if you're not, if you haven't experienced that here this morning, can I offer you a prayer? Pray this with me right now in your, in, your, in your seat. Dear God, my pride has nearly ruined me. Your power has nearly overwhelmed me and I've been brought low. Please change me. Put new clothes on me. Give to me the robes of Christ's righteousness that I might rise from this desperate, deranged state and give you the praise that you that, that you so desperately deserve from my life. Pray that. Seek the Lord that way. What happened to Eustace? Did he die? No, he writes the following. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off 
And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. See, being converted is being human. It's what it means to become a human for the first time. It's what it means to become a boy again. So does God intend our harm in killing our pride in this way? No, no, no. His goal is to restore us. His pride led him to the fall, but his confession led to his restoration. So what an exit from the pages of Scripture for King Nebuchadnezzar. What an epilogue. We never hear from him again, but what a final word. A Babylonian king giving praise to the one true and living God. Brian Chappell put it this way, God loved a cruel pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar when there was no earthly reason to do so. If God so loved these whose lives were so disgraceful, then he can love us too. If a low life like Nebuchadnezzar was granted the kingdom, there's hope for the lowliest of us. And we can praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word to reflect on how you worked in a man's life by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. We thank you for bringing him to a point of crisis and then for bringing a faithful witness to him, bringing humiliation to him, and bringing restoration to him. It's the path of how you deal with us. So may all of us rejoice this morning, those of us who have been dealt with this way by you. May we have new reasons to praise you and new songs in our mouth and new hymns of praise to our God. And may we be ready to tell others, as Nebuchadnezzar has told us this morning, come, all you who fear God, and I want to tell you what he's done for my soul. May we do that for each other. May we do that for our neighbors and friends and family and coworkers. May we make known the glorious deeds of the Lord for our sinful and low selves. And may you receive glory from it. May you receive glory for restoring us and giving the kingdom to the lowliest of men and women like us. We give you praise in Jesus' name.